To get you ready for the message this morning, I want you just to listen to three scriptures. Let them settle in your heart and mind like a gentle rain. These were given to you in the last sermon, last Sunday morning, from Galatians 5, verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another, serve one another in love. Then Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will feel, fulfill the law of Christ. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Sometimes I've talked to ladies who've had a difficulty with what the Bible says about submitting uh, to your husbands. But I would point out that before the book of Ephesians tells wives to submit to their husbands, it tells tells us all as believers to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our series is Spirit-Filled Family Living. And the premise, the theme, has been from the book of Galatians where the Bible tells us that if we sow to our flesh, we will reap a harvest of death. And if we sow to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we will reap a harvest of life. And throughout the summer, I've been sharing with you the concept that every thought you think, every act that you perform, uh, every attitude that you hold is a seed. It isn't something that you think or say or do on the spur of the moment and then it's gone. You are sowing a seed. Every word you say is a seed. Every thought is a seed. And those things that you're thinking and doing and the attitudes that you're holding right now are going to bring a harvest someday. And the harvest that you are experiencing right now is relative directly back to the seeds that you've sown in the past. Last Sunday morning, I preached a sermon called First Seeds. How to begin sowing to the Spirit. And we stayed right around Ephesians 5.18 that tells us to be filled with the Spirit. And we begin to look at what the Spirit-filled life is about. How a Spirit-filled person sows seeds. We saw the first seed was repentance. Repentance is a change in our way of thinking. Repentance is not crying over sin. You know what? There are drunks this morning who woke up with a hangover who are crying over getting drunk last night. But they'll go out and get drunk again tonight or next week. They haven't changed. They're just sorry temporarily for what they've done. And I know a lot of Christian people who are sorry for their sin. They cry about their sin, but no repentance takes place. Repentance means, I used to think this was good for me, and I don't think it's good for me anymore. I used to want to do it, but I, I don't want to do it anymore. I wonder today, you don't have to say anything, but could I get a witness? Is there someone here that used to be a drunkard and used to think that getting drunk or shooting drugs or getting high was good for you? Now, it's the ugliest thing in the world. I wonder, is there anybody here who, before you were saved, uh, used to curse and used to fill the air until it was blue with profanity? You thought that was a thing to do. Now you can't imagine uh, a filthy word coming out of your mouth because you just don't see it the same way. That's repentance. Repentance is when you just don't see sin the same way. It used to be attractive. It used to be something you wanted to do. Now you don't want to do it anymore. You may slip and fall. And when you do... That different way of thinking kicks in and you know you've sinned against God and you go before the Father and you tell Him you're sorry and by God's grace you won't commit that sin anymore. That is repentance. It is a change in the way of thinking. Now, those things that I've talked about, I've talked about swearing or using alcohol or drugs, those are pretty simple. But see, I think where a lot of us go wrong, we, we act so much in the flesh, in our carnal nature... And we just think that's natural. We don't understand yet that there has to be repentance from that old fleshly way of living and thinking and to a spiritual way, a spirit-filled way. A lot of us, however, need to come to a place of repentance. 
Uh, Just like the drunkard, uh, just like the dope addict, just like the profane person, just like the immoral person. There are a lot of us who have been saved for years who need to come before God and say, God, I am sorry for the way I have been living. And not only am I sorry for the way my flesh has been controlling my life, that doesn't look good to me anymore. I want to live a spirit-filled way. I want to walk in the spirit. That's what this whole series is about. And I hope that a composite is taking shape in your mind of these great truths. Repentance was the first seed. Praise is the second seed. Praising God. You know, I walked in the early service this morning, came in the back door, normally walk in off the stage, and uh, just kind of walked in the back during the song service, the praise service. And uh, I saw, and I I try not to judge anyone, but you know, you, you can see when someone is actively engaged in praising God. On the other hand, I saw some of our members just standing there. And I thought, my goodness, just standing in a worship service. No singing, no praise. Hey, I'll tell you something. Failing to praise is a seed. That's a seed of the flesh. That's going to be a harvest. Don't tell me how much Bible you know. Don't tell me how many verses you can quote. And I don't want to know how much you know and who you know. If you're not filled with praise for God, you're sowing seeds of the flesh. But when you sow praise, you are sowing a seed that will reap a harvest. The Bible tells us God inhabits the praises of his people. Not just on Sunday morning at 930 and 11 o'clock, but he inhabits the praises of his people seven days a week, 24 hours a day. That is a seed sown. Thanksgiving. We can either complain or we can give thanks. And I had just enough time to introduce the seed that we're going to talk about this morning. But before I get to it, I want to ask a question, and it's a kind of embarrassing, or maybe it's an embarrassing answer. So I don't want you to respond visibly to me in any way. Don't nod your head. Don't elbow your husband. Don't raise your hand. Don't do anything. This is a good time just to sit still. This is the time to be still. Okay? I want to ask you, how many of you have problems in your home? How many of you have problems in your marriage? If pastoring 25 years has taught me anything, it's taught me that we can all get together and look sharp on Sunday morning. And still, when we scratch below the surface, there are a lot of godly people that have homes that are filled with trouble and difficulty. And sometimes the air is tense. Sometimes it's cold. And in some homes, it can get blazing hot. You say, Pastor, you're talking to Christians. Yeah, I had that idea. I know I'm talking to God. I know I'm talking to Christians. That happens in a lot of Christian homes. Do you have problems in your marriage? Do you have problems in your, with your kids? Do you have problems with your parents? Do you have problems with other people? Do you have problems in the workplace? Do you have problems in church? That's what I want to talk about today. Because it's bad when problems happen. Things get said. People get hurt. Relationships are damaged. I want, to, I want to tell you today, according to the Word of God, you don't have to live with problems. You do not have to have problems in your marriage. You don't have to have problems with your kids. You don't have to have problems with your neighbors or problems with other believers. It's not a law that you have to have problems. That's why I'm preaching today the sermon entitled, Suppose They Gave a War and Nobody Came. When I was a young person, there was a movie that had that title. I never saw it. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I always liked the title. Suppose they gave a war and nobody came. Suppose you just don't have problems in your home. Suppose you don't have problems with your kids. Suppose you don't have difficulties with the people that you love. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to ask three questions that will frame the beginning of our discussion. Discussion. First one is, and I know this is simplistic, but let's just start with the baseline. What is it that causes damage in our homes and in our relationships? The answer is conflict. 
conflict. It may sound simplistic to you this morning, but it is true. Relationships are not strained where there is agreement. When husbands, when you and your wife see things the same way, and you're right on the same page and on the same team and thinking alike, and having pretty well the same goal in mind, you just don't have conflict. You don't have conflict when you have agreement. You don't have conflict with your friends if there is agreement. You don't have conflict in the church when there is agreement. That's, that's, that's perhaps superfluous for me to state, but that is the case. Conflict comes when I see things one way and someone else sees things another way. And not only is it a difference of thought, I begin to pursue what I want. And that person begins to pursue what he wants. And in that pursuit, that conflicting pursuit, there is damage. Imagine, if you will, two people trying to work on the same house, but there are two different sets of plans. One, one, uh, one of the workers, one of the construction workers has plans for a three-bedroom ranch. The other has plans for a four-bedroom, two-story. So what happens? Here's one guy sets out to build his plan, and then the other guy comes in and starts tearing down what he's done to build his plan. That's what's going on in many homes today. You have a husband and a wife who are building from two different sets of plans. So what causes the damage in our homes and relationships? Conflict. What then is the popular answer? What is the answer of our times for conflict? Since we all have it. What is the popular answer? What is the answer of the day? And of course, you know that it is conflict management. Uh, I don't, again, I don't, you don't have to raise your hands. But I wonder how many of you have attended seminars or workshops on conflict management, many of them sponsored and uh, perhaps uh, not only sponsored by your company, but you were demanded to attend these seminars on conflict resolution, conflict management. Some of you may have even taken a, a semester-long or a year-long college course in conflict resolution. Very trendy today. And I'll be honest, I even have a section on conflict resolution that I use when I deal with premarital counseling. And we talk about the different models of resolving conflict from the lowest to the highest. You know, we talk about uh, the low forms of dealing with conflict, the I must win mindset, uh, the yield, I just give in, there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm going to give in, or withdraw, I don't even want to talk about it. Those are some bad models, as you know, for resolving conflict. Then you move up into a better model, which is uh, compromise. I give a little, you give a little. You get a little what, what you want, I get a little of what I want. Maybe we can be, both, both be happy together. And then there's the, the ultimate uh, idea of resolving conflict in which I win and you win and we both win and we're both happy. I don't know if that ever happens, but that's theoretically, that's theoretically the goal of conflict resolution and conflict management. I don't deny that there's some benefit in these techniques. But from what I read and what I study, and not only that, from what I can see in today's conflict management, there are some things that are lacking. For one thing, the outcome seems lacking to me. A lot of what I study and a lot of what I see in this concept of conflict management reminds me of the mindset and the thinking of the United States during the Cold War of the 50s and 60s. We were dealing with containment. How can we find a way to contain the Soviet Union? Detente. And I don't know about you, but that's not good enough for me. I, I don't like that. that. That isn't enough of what we need as believers in Jesus Christ to live successfully. And I just see that lack of success with conflict management in marriages, in churches, and in the workplace. By the way, have you ever seen as much conflict as there is today? I've been in several workplaces lately. In fact, one was a, a workplace where the employees were high paid. And I'm sure that they've all been to conflict management seminars. 
And while I was there, all I heard were, were employees talking to each other about the conflicts that they were having with other people in the company. They were, they were rehearsing. Well, I told her this, and she said that, and I told her this, and boy, I mean, I was getting the play-by-play of the blow-by-blow that happened the day before. Now, let's be clear on one thing. I do believe that there is some benefit with conflict management. Conflict is a problem of the flesh. And if you're dealing with fleshly people, if you're unsaved, or if you're a safe person in an environment where most of the people are unsaved, there is some benefit to conflict management. But I'm preaching to Christians this morning. And we as believers in Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit. And for us, there is a higher power than pop psychology. And that leads me to the, to the third question. We've talked about what causes the damage. Conflict causes the damage. What's the popular response to conflict? Conflict management. But let us now ask the third question. What is it that causes conflict? And the answer is demanding rights. That brings us to the sermon. It hooks us up with the sermon from last week. Remember I told you that the fourth of the first seeds was meeting needs. Meeting needs is the opposite of demanding rights. Now, it's been too long since I've been in Bible college and seminary to know if this is homiletically sound or not. It's been a long time since I took homiletics, but I'm going to go ahead and give you the gist of the sermon right now. Please don't leave, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is the gist of today's sermon. Conflict in the home, sustained, continual conflict, conflict in the home or any place else is a harvest. It is not a happenstance, it is a harvest. Peace in the home, or peace anywhere else, is not a happenstance, it is a harvest. If in your marriage you have sustained, continual conflict, somebody, or both parties, have been sowing the carnal seed of demanding rights. If you have peace in your home, Somebody or both parties have been sowing the spiritual seed of meeting needs. It's as simple as that. Whatever's going on in your marriage right now is a harvest of somebody either sowing the carnal seed of demanding rights or the spiritual seed of meeting needs. Now, we live, obviously, in a time where rights are a big part of our vernacular and big part of our common conversation. The myth of today is that you can have a marriage where a husband demands his rights and a wife demands her rights and you can negotiate a peaceful settlement. Boys and girls, can you spell divorce? That's a myth. Let me say that one more time. If conflict is present, somebody has been sowing the seed of demanding rights. If peace is present, somebody has been sowing the spiritual seed of meeting needs. Now, right now, you can know whether you're carnal or spiritual. If you're spiritual, I believe, as Paul said... You'll give a witness to this. If you're carnal, you're already considering the exceptions. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Like Simon Peter, when uh, he asked the Lord, he said, how many times should I forgive? The rabbis of that day said three. Peter said seven. But you can tell by the way he framed the question. He wasn't asking a question of how many times should I forgive? He was wanting to know when he could stop forgiving. When can I bust him in the mouth? That's what Peter wanted to know. And so I'm just saying right now at this juncture, how you're responding to this will tell you a whole lot about who you are on the inside. 
Now remember, the battle is between the flesh and the spirit. If you sow to the flesh, it's death. If you sow to the spirit, it is life. I just want to say now, it is the nature of our flesh. It is the nature of our flesh to stake out territory. That's our fleshly nature, not our spirit, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not demand rights. And the spirit within us does not demand what is coming to us. That is our flesh that does that. It is our fleshly nature that demands our rights. Let me, and you say, well, Pastor, I struggle with that. Well, then you're going to really struggle with this. Because not only is it our fleshly nature to demand rights, it is the baser part of our fallen, depraved nature to demand our rights. It's not just our flesh. It is the baser element of our flesh to demand our rights. How is that borne out? Well, that's borne out with the animal kingdom. The animals have no souls. But you know, of course, the animals mark their territory. And not only the animal kingdom, but the lower form, even of, of our own, of our own uh, world, the human world. The more baser elements of the human world, there is this desire to control territory. We see this sometimes with gangs who use graffiti to mark their part of town. And you know when you go into that town or to that part of town, you know that you're in the territory of some particular gang. And what is the message? The message is invade my space at your own peril. If you trespass into my territory, we're going to have conflict. Now, we can say, as we look at, we look at gang, gang graffiti, and we can say, isn't that terrible? I mean, those people have marked up the overpass, and they've marked up this wall, and therefore we... I want to tell you something. There's a lot of invisible graffiti in the homes that are represented out here today. I'm marking my territory. I'm a, I'm a husband. This is my right. This is my territory. Don't invade my space. This is a wife. I've got my territory. Don't invade my space. The kids have their territory. Don't tell me what to do. I've got my territory. I'm marking this. This is my territory. Invisible graffiti. But let me just remind us all that we are not part of this world system. We are not living in the flesh. We are part of a kingdom. Even though we live in this world, we are part of a kingdom. And for just a few moments as we close out today's sermon, I want to invite you to consider two teachings from the life of Jesus Christ. Let's, let's call the first one, who's the greatest? Our Lord is on his way to the cross. Think about this. I mean, he is walking toward Jerusalem. Before him is Calvary. Before him is all the pain that he is going to suffer. But the disciples are not immediately following him. They're hanging back in a cluster. And while they're hanging back, they're kind of going at each other. You know how it is when you can see a group of people and you can tell that they're having some conflict. You can tell by the set of their jaw. You can tell by the expressions on their faces and the sound of the words. These guys are having a, a fight, a fuss. But they're keeping it down because they don't want Jesus to hear them. By the way, isn't that ridiculous to try to stay out of the earshot of Jesus? And so he says, uh, what was it you boys were fussing about back there? That is a Texas paraphrase. <laughs> and they don't want to tell him. And the reason they don't want to tell him is they have been hassling each other, each other over who was the first. They were arguing among themselves over who was first. Let me read it to you. Mark 9, verse 33. 
And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. Consider Jesus' answer. Whoever wants to be first, let him be the servant of all. And by the way, you know, it comes to me that the world didn't give a rip about any of these guys until they came into contact with Jesus. I mean, here were guys who were arguing over who was the first when really they were a bunch of fishermen and dockhands. One of them was a tax collector, which is the lowest form of society. One of them was what we would consider the equivalent today of a right-wing militia member and wanted to blow up the government. None of these guys were prizes. In fact, after... You know, when the people saw them, they perceived they had been with Jesus. They saw them as unlearned and ignorant men. Who cares who is first among unlearned and ignorant men? But that's what they were arguing about. Jesus' answer was, if you want to be first, be a servant, meet needs. But why do people want to be first? People want to be first because they feel like if they are first, others will meet their needs. We'll have to go to a different book the Gospel of John, but John tells us what happened later that same afternoon. John 13, verse 4 through 5. Look at Jesus' example. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. You see how the conflict was ended? Let me just take a moment to see if I can flesh out the story for you. The disciples were fussing over who was going to be first. There was one thing dead sure, none of them was going to be last. In those days, people did not eat around tables like we do. You've probably seen the depiction of the Lord's Supper where the disciples are all sitting at this long table. That's a beautiful picture, but it didn't happen that way. People in Bible days didn't eat around tables. They, they ate lying on the floor in a semi-reclining position with their heads propped up on their arms and they would lie on their sides. And I'll try to be as genteel as I can possibly be about this, but these guys have been walking all day on hot, dusty roads and their feet didn't smell too good. And when you're all lying around on the floor like that eating, quite honestly, somebody's feet are pretty close to your face. So, in those days, it was the job. This is true. It was the job. And people, had, people, if they were wealthy, had servants. It was the job of the lowest servant of the house. I mean, that was the bottom job. The lowest servant in the house, whoever he or she was, they met the guests at the door with a towel and a basin of water, and they washed their feet as a courtesy to those who came in. And it was a courtesy, really, to everybody who, was, who were going to be lying there eating. So if you went into a house and a servant met you at the door with water to wash your feet, you know one thing, you know you have just encountered the lowest person in the house. If there were no servants, it would probably be the youngest child. Those of you who are babies of the family, you know there are just certain jobs that gravitate to the baby of the family. Can I get a witness on that of the babies in the family? Amen. And all you firstborns are saying, kids get by with everything. What are you raising your hands for? <laughs> and your middle are saying, nobody ever pays attention to us. Why are either one of you raising your hands? 
Now the disciples are fussing over who's first. Now, can you imagine any of them washing feet? Because anyone who had volunteered to wash feet would have said, not only am I not first, I'm the last. And so what do they do? They all go into dinner with stinking feet. By George, I'm not going to do it. And you know, I don't mean to be crass here, but Christians can be pretty cruddy sometimes. These guys have walked with Jesus for three years. Does it at least impress you that none of them wanted to wash Jesus' feet? You know what? When you're, ha- when you're demanding your rights and demanding your space, and when you're, set- when you're the one setting the terms of the conflict, you're not in a spirit of worship. You know, I, I, meet, I meet Christians all the time, and, and I, I want to be gracious about this, but I meet Christians all the time that are filled with conflict and filled with division and filled with all these kinds of attitudes who want me to believe that they're spirit-filled. I want to tell you something. If you live in conflict, you cannot be spirit-filled. Conflict is an attitude of the flesh. And if you can't get along with your husband, if you can't get along with your wife, and you can't get along with your friends and you're a, a grass burr in, 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 any, in all the relationships in your life, you can't be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't live that way. So here they were. Nobody was going to admit that they were the bottom servant. And that's when our Lord, the King of glory, the Creator of the universe, God Almighty Himself, got up, filled up a basin with water, put a towel on His belt, And he bent over and he washed the feet of every one of those men. Do you see how he resolved the conflict? He resolved the conflict not by demanding his rights, and he certainly could have. He he solved the conflict by meeting needs. And I want to just preach. And first of all, it starts with husbands and fathers. If you will go home today and if you will start sowing spiritual seed of meeting needs, not demanding your rights, not demanding your space, not demanding that everybody else give you what you want. But if you will walk out of here and you will say, by God's grace, I'm going to sow spiritual seeds and I'm going to meet needs. You will begin to have a harvest of grace and peace. You say, well, my husband won't do it. Well, then you do it. You say, my wife won't do it. You do it. You do it. I may be preaching to some young people here today. And you say, my parents won't do this. But you could do it. You could do it. Very quickly, let me give you this and I'll be finished this morning. Second mile. The second mile. Jesus is teaching. Matthew 5, verse 41. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twine or two. Let me just give you this historical backdrop here. It was the duty of every Jewish boy to carry the gear of a Roman soldier for one mile. That was the law. There was nothing could be done about that. The Jews hated the Romans. They chafed under the Roman rule. The Jews didn't like the fact that they were a a subjugated nation. But the law was simply this. If a Roman soldier came along, a Jewish boy was working in the field, the Roman soldier could demand that that Jewish boy carry his pack and his paraphernalia one mile. The Jews so hated the Romans, the historians tell us, that the Jewish families would mark off one mile exactly from their house in all four directions so that any boy who had to carry the pack of a Roman soldier would not have to carry it one inch further than the law demanded. I have a bad habit. I've got a type A personality and I'm geared fast. And I, whenever I listen to a speaker, I want him or her to get to the point. And a lot of times I'm listening to a speaker and I'll hear a sentence begin. And I think, I know where this is going. 
And in my mind, I'll finish it out for him. Now, I'm trying to get over that, but that's been a habit that I've had for a lot of years. So I've tried to put myself back in time. I'm listening to Jesus teach on this day. And he has started the sentence by saying, if anyone compels you, makes you go with him one mile. How do you think he's going to finish that sentence? There are probably some out there in the crowd who would have thought he's going to say rebel. If anyone makes you go with him a mile, say, I'm not going to do it. Civil disobedience. Maybe there were some more pragmatic people in the crowd who, when Jesus said, if anyone compels you to go with him a mile, they would have figured he was going to say, do what you have to do. But he must have blown them away when he said, if anybody compels you to go with him a mile, go to. What? You don't have to do that. The law doesn't make you do that. See, if you're in demanding rights, this is insane. But what is our Lord saying? Remember, the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity with Jesus and God the Father. They're all on the same page. They're all into this meeting needs thing. It's us. It's our flesh that's in this demanding rights thing. Jesus said, go to. I have long imagined how this must have played out. I can see the average situation. I can see this Jewish boy working in the field and a Roman soldier comes up and says, hey boy, carry my pack. Can you see how he just glares as he says, all right, slings it on his back, muttering under his breath. We see him slow down so that he can delay the soldier. Finally, they get to that white peg and I can see this boy already start pulling it off just as they get close to the peg and Throwing it on the ground and walking away under his breath. You hear him say, someday my country's going to rule yours and I'll make you carry this pack a hundred miles. That's the norm. But always try to imagine what, what it would have been like for a Roman soldier to have encountered a boy, a young man who bought into this message that Jesus had. And so here he says to this kid who's out shoveling in the field, hey boy, come carry my pack. And the boy drops the shovel and comes over and says, yes, sir, I'll be glad to. Straps the pack on his back and begins to walk briskly. And as he walks, he talks to this soldier about what's going on in Rome and how he became a soldier and what his family's like. And they're having a good time. They get to the white marker and the boy just keeps right on going. The soldier looks over and shows him, wait a minute, son, you just walked past your mile marker. And the boy says, you know, sir, I've had such a good time. I think I'm going to go another mile with you. Can you see that soldier's jaw drop? I guarantee you, those of you who are concerned about evangelism, it was in that second mile that that young man had a chance to tell that soldier why he was different. You think this would work in the home? I always thought it would. The second mile thing. Can you see this husband who gets up in the morning and he looks at his, you know, women, husbands have a favorite shirt, right? I mean, he should be thrown out, but they have a favorite shirt that they like. And he gets up and there's a button off his shirt and he says to his wife, you know, there's a button off my shirt. I want you to sew it on. And you know how sometimes husbands can say things in a way that's sort of accusative. It's like, why did you tear the button off my shirt? So this, but would you sew this button on for me? And I hear her say, you know, your buttons come off at the most inopportune times. If you would check your clothes out the night before and make sure that you had everything you need, you wouldn't get up like this and have a button off your shirt and make me have to stop what I'm doing and come sew this button on. 
And I see her. She says, all right, I guess I have to do it. So she's sewing the button on. She says, by the way, you know, I just did the, just balancing the checkbook last night for the week. And I'm, I'm $50 short. I don't know how it happened, but I'm $50 short. $50 short. What do you do with all the money I give you? If you were more careful, if you budgeted it more carefully, we wouldn't get into these kind of scrapes. And so both go off to their jobs or whatever they do. And that's life. Now, can you imagine a couple that's bought into this principle of meeting needs and going the second mile? Husband gets up, sees a button off a shirt. I should have checked my clothes last night, sweetheart, but there is a button off my shirt. Could you help me and sew it on? She says, you know, I'm delighted to do that. I just love doing little things like that for you. And while she's sewing it on, she says, you know, I don't know how this happened, but I was balancing the checkbook last night. And I came up $50 short. He says, sweetheart, I don't know how you make the money go as far as you do. Here's $100. (laughs) And we laugh. But it works. And I, I just want to say something personal to you here. I want you to know you're not talking to somebody who's already crossed the finish line. I struggle with this. Because I have a sense of justice and I have a sense of expectation. And I'll tell you, it it is a struggle for me and I'm working on this just as you're working on it. And and let me just go, let me just deal with something practically. If you walk out and buy into this message, I think you're going to have to give yourself some practical tests in life just to see if you can do this. I got a test on this this week. I know it's 12 o'clock. Let me tell you this and it will be through. I, uh, I, had to, I, have, I live on the east side of, in fact, I live on almost Andover Road. And I had to take my Volkswagen in to have the oil changed. And the place where I take it is on, it might as well be Arizona. It's on the west side of town, really on the west side of town. And it's a good place of business. I've taken my cars there for a year and they've, they've always done a fine job. And I say that in case you can put two and two together and figure out where I took my car. I just had the oil changed. And while I was sitting there waiting for my oil to be changed, I looked up and there was a sign that said, it's not done in 29 minutes, it's free next time. I thought, well, that's something worth remembering. But they got it done in 29 minutes. Now, I wasn't watching my watch. I just wanted you to know that I knew what the rule was. But anyway, 29 minutes and it was free. But I, I had to pay for it. I left, drove all the way back over to Andover. And at the end of the day, parked my car in the garage. The next morning when I pulled out, I thought I smelled oil. And I looked under my car, and there wasn't just a few drops of oil. There was a big puddle of oil. And so I dropped everything I was doing that morning, drove all the way back across town. And they put the car up on the rack and said, you know, the drain plug was loose. And he said, we just can't get good help these days. And we tried, and I thought, boy, that's not a real good advertisement to tell the customers that, but that's what he told me. Now I'm sitting there thinking, you know, That sign says 29 minutes. So far, it's been two mornings. (laughs) And when I didn't yet know what happened, I had on a cream-colored golf sweater and ruined it. That's a golf sweater. And I'm thinking, by George, they ought to at least give me a coupon for paying for the next oil change that I have because after all, the sign says that. And I thought, you know, Mark, let's just see if you can absorb this. Now, that may not be difficult for your personality, but you don't know how difficult that is for my personality to walk away from something like that and say, thank you, sir. I appreciate you putting my drain plug back in. 
I'm just telling you, if you buy into this, you're going to have to give yourself some exercises, paying attention to what's going on in your life and saying, Am it, is, it, is it really possible for me? Is it truly possible for me to go into situations not demanding my rights, but meeting needs? And by the way, I'm not talking about letting people manipulate you. Nor am I talking about going into this as a victim saying, well, I may as well give up and let people run over me. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about saying, because I, I'm doing this not because I'm weak. I'm doing it because I'm strong. I'm strong in God. I know that God's going to give me the outcome. And because I'm confident in God, I can afford not to demand my space, but I can meet your needs. Well, I've been preaching almost 30 years. And I know what it's like to preach a message like this. You know, this is just between you and me. I've always caught a little flack from some of the more legalistic persuasion that I don't do so-called hard preaching. With legalists, hard preaching is all the stuff about the externals, the dotting of I's and crossing of T's. When I was a kid growing up, it was boys having long hair. That will tell you how old I am, and you'll also understand that's not a problem with me anymore. I lived the first half of my life with my dad saying, son, you have got to get a haircut. I've lived the second half with my boys saying, dad, you've got to get a haircut. So there is no justice in this world on that anyway. But I would go to revival meetings and such when I was a kid. And that was a popular thing. And that was hard preaching. You boys ought to get a haircut. <laughs> you know, that's the easiest thing in the world to get a haircut. What I'm doing today is hard preaching. See, Jesus said, you talked about people that clean up the outside of the cup, but the inside's full of crud. That's legalism. That's hypocrisy. This is tough. Anybody can deal with the externals. And I, as I say, I've been preaching for almost 30 years, and I know that when you preach something like this, that there'll be people that'll just say, why, well, it's not for me. I'm not going to do this. If I gave up demanding my rights, if I gave up marking my territory, people would just run all over me. And I also preach in sympathy knowing that some of you have been abused. So at the end of the day, you may listen to this sermon and say, okay, pastor, maybe I'll see if next week is any better. Really, I thought the sermon today was kind of a bomb. And I'm just not going to buy into it. Let me ask you three things. First question is, how are you coming? How are you coming with your way of life? <laughs> if you're demanding your space and you, you're demanding everybody else to do what you want, marking your territory, how are you doing? I know the answer. You got conflict. You might even be filled with conflict. But you say, Pastor, it's not my fault. Never is. I mean, if you're demanding your rights, how can you be wrong? I mean, if you're demanding what you have coming to you, how can you be wrong? So therefore, it's never your fault. The only problem is you're in conflict with somebody who thinks he's right and you're wrong because he's demanding his rights. And how can he be right? How can he be wrong if he's demanding his rights? Therefore, you have conflict. Can you say circular? And I'm not trying to have an attitude this morning. I'm just saying if you won't buy into this, how, how are you coming? How, how are you? And the second question is, are you happy with your life? I just believe that if you are demanding your space and demanding your rights with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your parents, you can't be happy. 
You could have a temporary pleasure when they, when they give in, but you're not happy. And then finally, do you care about a harvest from God? Because see, here's the thing. If I demand my rights from people, I will get what people will give me. If I meet needs, I will get what God gives me. I'd rather have what God gives me. And you say, well, pastor, what if I do get taken advantage of? What if I set out to meet needs and my husband does take advantage? Well, my wife does take advantage or my kids do take advantage of me. What if I set out to meet needs and I get taken advantage of? Well, in the language of the day, the answer to that question is you get to hang out with Jesus. Because he's the one with the towel in the basin of water. I don't know if you'll buy into this or not, but if you do, it'll revolutionize your life. And regardless of the conflict that's around you, you can live in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. And I pray that you'll help us as we set out to do this great thing that is so much like Jesus. I pray for husbands and wives. I pray for kids, parents, grandparents, for singles, Father, who live in a world of conflict. May we set our course to meet needs. Oh, God, may we see the beauty and the harvest of being a servant. In Jesus' name, amen.